You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a professor of psychological and brain sciences at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a nationally renowned scholar whose contributions on national, state, regional, and university levels have had a profound impact on family research. Her work focuses on the ways in which sociocultural factors such as race, gender, and social class shape the mental health and family relationships of parents and their children. Holding a PhD in human development and family studies from Penn State, her latest book is titled Work Matters, How Parents' Jobs Shape Children's Well-Being. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Maureen Perry Jenkins. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. Well, firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your research. Sure. Uh, my name is Maureen Perry Jenkins. As you said, I'm a professor in psychological and brain sciences at UMass Amherst. And the sort of focus of the book is um, the result of a 20-year longitudinal study of low-income families who were having their first child and then having to manage the demands of low-wage work. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Okay, so your latest book is titled um, Work Matters, How Parents' Jobs Shape Children's Well-Being. And as I understand it, the book involved an extensive longitudinal research process over many years and thousands of interviews. So can you tell us a bit about how your latest book came about and your journey in writing it? Sure. Um, yeah, so this study was funded by the National Institute of Health, um, starting way back in the early 2000s, um, where there was really an interest at NIH on how factors outside of families, um, racism, classism, sexism, so broad factors shaped what was going on within families. And at the time that they were sort of funding those sorts of projects, I was out in the field already doing interviews with families um, of young children at that time, sort of trying to understand how they were managing the demands of work and parenthood and what were the implications for their well-being and their children's well-being. And during during one of those interviews with a mom with older children, she actually stopped me in the middle of the interview and said, you know, why didn't you talk to me about this when I had babies? Like, yeah, it's hard with these this age kids. But when I had to leave my newborn infant after two weeks and go back to a job because I didn't have leave and went back to a job where they could have cared less that I had a child, um, that's was actually what she said is that was hell. And that's what you need to be writing about. And so that actually was the impetus for this study long ago with this one interview where I looked back at the transition of parenthood literature and realized that very little of, of it addressed the second transition that most parents experience, which is going back to work very soon after having your baby. So that was sort of the impetus for starting this research project. But at that time, I had no idea it would be a 20-year endeavor, but turned into a 20-year endeavor. Okay. So um, firstly, I wanted to start off by discussing the role that parental income plays in child outcomes. So two questions here based on your research. Number yep. one, how strongly do parental incomes affect children's future outcomes? And number two, are there other factors besides income related to work, like perhaps job satisfaction, numbers, number of hours worked, et cetera, that are more telling or important in terms of child outcomes or success? That's a big question. And um, it's sort of a question that goes outside of the realm of this study because income absolutely matters for children because it 
gives them access to resources and food and housing. So a certain amount of income is absolutely vital. Um, and the data would bear that out. The, the, this study actually focused on all families that were of low income. So income did not vary a lot. So what I was really interested in was looking actually beyond just the impact of income. So the, the narrative out there is the low wages are bad and low wages, low wage work is bad and low wage is, is sort of a, a problem in our society. And, and at some level, absolutely low wages are our problem. But what I was really interested in is even amongst sort of all low wage workers, there are some families that still seem to thrive and some that don't. So this was really a study of trying to understand among a fairly large sample of low income workers who are experiencing this transition, um, what were the factors beyond just income that had an impact on parents' ability to parent, on their mental health, and ultimately on their kids' development? And that's when we started digging into everything from shifts and schedules and and income. But we were really interested in saying above and beyond those structural things, what happens at work day in and day out, week after week, month after month, that may impact parents in a way that ultimately affects their kids. And that's where we started looking at things like relationships on the job and autonomy on the job and urgency on the job and how those characteristics um, ended up having sort of a long reach into the family and affecting not only parents' relationships with each other and their own well-being, but ultimately their kids' early development. Okay, so next I wanted to ask about how factors, different factors differ between mothers and fathers. So are the, the different career and income factors for mothers and fathers equally important in determining child outcomes? And what, if any, job-related things matter more for one sex than the other? That's a really good question. Um, the biggest takeaway finding for our kid outcomes. So when we were actually taking our data all the way to the end where we're looking at you know, sort of these children six years later entering first grade, was there anything about their parents' work experiences really early in their development that had an effect on them? We found that the most profound factor that had an effect on kids was both mothers and fathers' sense of autonomy. What I mean by that, autonomy is an interesting measure. It's basically that you feel like you have some say in what you do in your jobs, that you feel invested in your jobs, that you feel like you have, you're making a contribution with your work. Um, and in fact, mothers and fathers, remember, these are all low-wage workers, but those who reported that they felt some autonomy and self-direction and sense of control in their work ended up being less harsh and more involved parents, which ended up having positive effects on kids' social development, both in terms of their social skills and having fewer behavior problems. And our outcome data was actually reported by their teachers in the first grade. So that's important because in research like this, they can't be experimental. It's really helpful to get different reporters or more, if you will, more objective reporters than just parents reporting on their kids' well-being. <coughs> so, but you did ask about gender differences. And um, where we did find gender differences actually was on sort of what about work mattered more for mothers and fathers' mental health. So for mothers, supervisor support was really critical. And that makes sense. Sort of, you know, they're, they're having to manage schedules. They're coming, taking time off. They're, you know, physically needing to have space away from work, maybe nursing. And supervisors manage a lot of that. So having a, a, a good supportive supervisor made a huge difference for mothers' mental health, significantly decreasing their depression across the first year. For fathers, it was actually their relationships with their coworkers that mattered more um, for their well-being. So fathers who said, you know, I've got buddies at work and I've got friends at work who support me. And in the book, I talk about one example where 
when a dad, uh, his father had no leave policy and his friends all chipped in one of their vacation days so he could take a week off to be with his new baby. Things like that um, were very important for father's mental health and positively affected their mental health. Their supervisors didn't have as much of an impact. That makes sense? Yeah. Um, so next I wanted to ask about how low-income parents' mindsets might affect children. So just intuitively, one would assume that low-income parents would push their children towards higher education, more stable careers, so that they can have a better life. So did you observe any evidence of this in your research? And more broadly, how do the mindsets and expectations of parents affect children in general? Yeah. So many of our parents talked about wanting their children to have better life than theirs, wanting their children to be able to go to school, wanting their children to be able to get have make more money than they made. But remember, you know, these were these were parents of infants. So I think many were not necessarily thinking about the long-term trajectory for their kids. They were thinking about how am I going to take care of my child and work and how am I going to make sure um, we can manage child care. So it was, you know, these were pretty stressed, very busy families. And I think when you're that sort of living day to day, it's sometimes hard to think of the long-term um, implications of what you're doing and what you want for your kids. Um, I have many stories of families who, you know, we, we had a lot of qualitative data and a lot of stories who talked about, um, feeling invisible and not wanting their child to be invisible. So one of, one of the fathers in our study worked at a university cafeteria setting and he basically said, you know, I'm, I'm invisible to these kids that come in and get their food and are going to college. They don't even see me here. And I don't want that for my, for my child because I want my child to be one of those kids which was kind of sad thinking about these kids aren't seeing these people, but at the same time, I want my child to be there. So it's, um, it's complicated once the kids started getting into school. So when we measured, went back again and these kids were in the first grade, parents were starting to think about, you know, being achieve, how to achieve in school and what are the implications for them in achieving in school and long-term implications for college. But they're also very pragmatic and sort of saying, we can't afford, we're not going to be able to afford college when that time comes. Our kids not going to be able to go to college because there's no way unless they get, you know, good, good schools, um, uh, funds or something like that, this isn't going to happen. So I, I would say at a broad level, of course, every parent wanted better for their kids. When it got very pragmatic into what was going on in their lives, it was not the thing that was forefront in their minds most of the time. Okay. Um, so next I wanted to ask about differences in ethnicity and culture. So did you observe any statistically significant differences across races in terms of work um, and how that affects parents and children and what cultural factors do you think might be behind that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and um, our sample was fairly evenly divided amongst African-American families, uh, Latinx families and white families. So we did a number of analyses to sort of understand, and we had 370 couples that we interviewed five times across their first year of parenthood. We interviewed them again when their kids were entering um, the first grade. So we had a lot of data on these families. And almost always um, when we ran these things, looking at whether race made a difference in how work affected families, those processes were not different. They worked the same way in all families. What did differ, however, was um, across the transition to parenthood in particular, mental health differences um, emerged. And they're not what we typically talk about when we talk about mental health and, and race. The literature out there suggests that on average, African women of color have higher levels of depression than white women. But our sample was different in that all of our women were employed full-time outside of the home. And what we found was that 
at the around the transition of parenthood, right when they were pregnant and having their babies, all mothers, no matter what their race and ethnicity, tended to have fairly high depressive symptoms because they were in their last trimester and there was there was a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety. The babies came and all mothers' depression declined, but the biggest decline, the, the, the folks who did the best across that transition were our black mothers. The folks who did the worst across that transition were our Latina mothers. And so we followed them across that first year and found that our black mothers actually stayed recovered. So they recovered from their depressive symptoms and stayed on average much lower than our white mothers and way lower than our Latina mothers. So we were like, what is going on here? Why are our Latina mothers um, reporting significantly higher levels of depression across the whole transition, especially higher than black mothers? So this is where having mixed methods and being able to go back to your qualitative data is really helpful. So we went back to the qualitative data and what was going on um, was that for our black mothers, when we asked them about how do you feel about going back to work? Are you concerned about going back to work? Um, the general response was, I feel fine. Black women have always worked. We have never not worked. We have always supported our children and almost a sort of sense of why are you even asking me this question? Um, in contrast, for our Latina moms, um, we had a primarily Puerto Rican sample and they reported feeling incredibly guilty about going back to work and also a lot of pressure from their mothers and from other family members that they shouldn't be going back. They were harming their child. This was not good. Um, and so we had many teary interviews with our Latina moms feeling like this was going to irreparably harm their child. And meanwhile, our moms, our, our white moms were sort of somewhere in the middle. So sort of almost a mesh of those two different kinds of experiences. So I think, again, the cultural sort of themes and values across these different racial um, and ethnic groups is really important to consider. So despite, so the difference, but so we did find these mean differences, but again, the processes, the ways in which work shaped kids' development was not different, but the levels of mental health were different across groups, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, so I also wanted to ask about, you know, parents' experiences in jobs and how that might translate into their their, um, you know, how, how they might bring those experiences into their yeah. their personal lives and raising their children. Um, so, you know, can you can you speak a little bit to you know how um, potentially employees oh. feel in their jobs, the stress that they might experience on a day to day basis, um, and, and the sort of just overall experiences that they have, and how that that translates back into the home. Sure, sure. Um, so th I talked about this in the book a little bit as sort of the. This sort of job being there at the dinner table, the job being there in your relationships, the job being there and how you parent your child. So let me give you a few examples that we talked about in the book. Um, and I, I guess I want to say at the very beginning that, you know, we interviewed many, many, many families uh, multiple times. And I had never met a parent that didn't truly love their child. Um, these parents care deeply about their kids. That didn't always translate into them being able to be the best parents that they wanted to be. Um, because of sort of the stress and conditions that were going on. So there's one mom that's, that I tell the story of in the book where she was, uh, she became pregnant and her boyfriend was not happy about them being, having a baby. So he left. So she was going to approach this transition on her own. And she was working as a um, night shift in a nursing home as a nursing assistant. And so she got someone, paid someone to come in and sleep at her house to, to be with the baby at night. And then she would come home. After what she described as a fairly boring but stressful job, so so not not necessarily doing a lot, but at times having to do a lot and, and wandering um, um, elderly folks and a staff and a boss who was very um, non-supportive. So 
she would come home in the morning, the babysitter would leave, and then she would be taking care of her baby all day and basically only slept when her baby slept. So when we were in there um, after the baby was about six months old doing some videotaped interactions, so we would videotape our parents interacting with their children and doing different activities together. And um, we had this activity going on with this mom who was just clearly exhausted, clearly depressed, coming home after a really long day. Um, wanted to be there. We had actually said, if you need us to leave and we'll come back. And she goes, nope, nope, that's, this is fine. I want the company. But when we started videotaping her, interacting with her child was just completely disengaged, um, looking at her phone, looking away. And, and this really sad video of this baby sort of reaching out to her mom and trying to get her to pay attention and kicking and whatever. And the mom kind of touching her, but just completely kind of disconnected. And, you know, every parent has bad so that's the other thing I want to say here. Not in those days where we're not proud of how we manage our kids or we let them watch TV too much or we do certain things. But what we were seeing here with this particular mom was because of the nature of her job and the stress of her job day in and day out, it was affecting her level of interaction and the quality of interaction with her baby. And when that happens again and again and again and again, that's when the risk factors really rise for this kid's developmental outcomes. So that's sort of a really poignant and very sad example, but there's many examples where really lousy work just keeps coming back day after day after day and seeping into sort of parent-child interactions. Okay. Um, I also wanted to ask about um, single parenthood and how that might shape children's well-being. Um, so over the last couple of decades, we've seen a, a sharp rise in single parenthood in America, particularly in the black community, but also um, to, a, to a lesser extent in the, in the white community as well. Um, so I, I wanted to ask about how the, these changes, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of, um, I, I think we hear a lot about it in the news, um, you know, very different perspectives on, on how that might shape children. Um, but yeah, I wanted to, to see if in your, your research and your interviews, um, you know, what, what impact you, you saw. Yeah. So especially, you know, we were studying families at a very sensitive time in development, right? The transition to parenthood. So all of our participants when we started were pregnant. And I will say the, the term single mom, yes, there are many moms who weren't partnered or weren't married or weren't living with the baby's father. But the majority of our quote unquote single moms were living with sisters, mothers, kin, friends. So very, I, I think total, we had seven moms who actually were living totally alone the whole time. So single is a bit of a misnomer. I mean, they're single in the way we think about, you know, you're not coupled with a partner. Um, but many were doing this transition with other folks around and other folks. And does it change the dynamic? Absolutely. And sort of how things go on. But it created a kind of its whole study within a study because many of our single moms were doing just fine. Uh, you know, liking their work, feeling like work was important, coming home, being engaged with their child, having child care, having family and kin around to sort of support them. Um, so again, it was, it was the same thing. The same processes were happening for our single moms and for our moms and two parent families. If work was lousy, you started seeing poor parent child interactions and poor child outcomes. If work was a place that was rewarding and people came home feeling energized, you started seeing the opposite. And this happened in both single parent and in two parent homes. So I don't know. I mean, it'd be interesting to know over a long run, whether these single moms ended up really becoming the sole parent in a household or whether how many single parent families or the way we define them is basically people who are unmarried, but we don't often collect data on, are you living with other adults? Do you have kin in the family? Which changes the whole process fairly dramatically. 
Okay. Um, so next, I wanted to uh, ask about um, sort of the 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 other side to all this, which is the employers. So, based on all the yeah. research and the interviews that you've conducted over the years, what what changes would you urge um, employers to make to help parent that that you think would help parents and children? And might there be any upside for the employers themselves in, in making these changes? This is a really, really important question, and I think requires many conversations amongst employers and CEOs and, and people like me and as policymakers as well, because I think a lot of how we've been sort of addressing work family challenges, especially for, for all working parents, is actually through policy level things at state and federal levels, right? So Family and Medical Leave Act, um, paid leave, which is happening slowly in each state, sick time, personal time, time to go to teacher parent-teacher conferences or, or baby well checkups. Like all of those are starting to become institutionalized in policies and all of them are very, very important. But we have sort of overlooked the idea that parents spend the majority of their day at work and that work over weeks and months and years is what kids end up experiencing. So work actually becomes a place where it could be a huge site for intervention for supporting kids, actually. It's something we don't really think about much. It's sort of actually a site of intervention for parenting and families. So some of the things that I talk about in the book are actually so simple. And I know that some of my colleagues and who have been talking about these findings have said, oh, now you need sort of like putting a Band-Aid on the bigger problem. And, and of course, we need more family, you know, people need to be paid more and they need to have, you know, predictable schedules. Absolutely. And I fight for that and my research says that. But we also need to look at what happens day in and day out on the job. And some of the simple, I have really good examples throughout the book of when thing, when work looks good for, for parents and when it doesn't. And what I've talked to employers about is, it's the little things that add up to create the big positive work environment. So it's not some big policy. It's usually things like someone being able to say, "My baby, I just got a call from daycare. My baby's sick. Is it okay if I leave? And a supervisor saying, absolutely, and not getting a black mark on your record for doing it, right? Or that you um, need to need to take a break to be able to nurse or that you're in your ninth month and need to be able to sit in a stool at the checkout, even though the rule is you're not supposed to sit in a stool. Those all sound like very small things, actually, giving people a break. But it's those things that add up over time. One of the moms um, where that her supervisor said, of course, you can sit on a stool. You're nine months pregnant. It's fine, even though the policy says you can't. Literally, in another interview I was doing, a mother was getting written up for sitting on a stool who was nine months pregnant because that was against policy. So these are things that sound almost ridiculous, but at, they do set the tone for the whole company. So that mom where the dad, where the supervisor said, of course, sit on a stool and take a break if you need to take a break. She, she was extremely loyal to her employer. She was ready to go back when she needed to go back. She knew he would have her back if she needed to leave and something was up. So things like retention and doing a better job and in, in, interacting with your customers if you're feeling like you've been treated res, with respect. There's a lot of data showing linking people who are happy at work to more productivity. That wasn't sort of, I wasn't measuring work productivity in this process, but we do know the things that create that well-being, those small things add up to this big change in how people feel about their work. Um, there are really pragmatic things people can do tomorrow to start making those kinds of changes at the work site. Um, and many of the employers I've talked to are kind of like, well, what's my return on investment? And we, you know, I share with them data on retention. I share with them data on, on worker loyalty. I share with them, which matters a lot right now, given people having a hard time finding workers. Um, and 
and I've not estimated or, or calculated what, what they're saving in that in terms of, but the other return on investment that we never talk about is the return on investment for the next generation of kids that we're going to be producing. That if what we're doing at workplaces actually translates into parents being better parents, into parents being able to engage with their kids more, into kids having, you know, fewer behavior problems as a function of this, that's another return on investment that like we all benefit from, not just the workplace. And, and I know academics are sort of seen of talking as sort of about this in sort of a pie in the sky way. And there are still, you know, we, we have a bottom line and we have money. And of course, I get that. But it's okay to also talk about why this is actually good for society um, and really have a discussion about that. Okay. Um, so finally, I wanted to, to ask if there was anything that you learned or any trends that you observed in researching or writing this book that were especially surprising or that you didn't expect. Um, I think I didn't expect to see so many families actually coping pretty well with really limited resources. And I think there's something about becoming a parent that just makes people rise to the occasion in ways, even when they're dealing with really challenging circumstances that is truly inspiring, actually. And I also feel like sometimes there's this distrustful relationship between sometimes between employers and employees. And after talking to, you know, hundreds of families working in, in these jobs, I, I was also very impressed with the integrity and loyalty to companies that, that these folks had um, that maybe employers don't know or never ask about or whatever. But I think there's just kind of a lack of connection sometimes between employers and their supervisors and employees. And if there was ways to open up those lines of communications just a little bit, I think it would make a world of difference. If employers or supervisors actually said to their employees, you know, what bar, I, maybe I can't give you a raise this week, but what would make this job better for you? What kinds of things would make a difference for you? Really simple question. You know, these families had such very simple solutions that weren't like I need on-site daycare, but they were more like, I could just leave on Thursdays at four so I didn't have to pay extra at daycare. That would be great. I would come in early, but if I could do that, like giving supervisors flexibility to let those sorts of things happen for their workers. To me, it was the smallness of some of the things, but the huge impact that we have just completely underestimated, I think. And I do think that some of those small things, they seem small, but they are actually just signs of respect for people that I think go a long way. Okay, um, so one more thing I actually wanted to ask about that um, I, I just realized. Um, the, the last chapter um, in the book is titled Thriving or Surviving, How to Move Forward. Right. Um, so, Dr. Perry Jenkins, how, how do we move forward um, outside of sort of the, some of the, the employer-based um, solutions that you mentioned? Um, you right. know, uh, are, are there any, I mean, having interviewed so many parents, I'm sure there was a wide range of different things right. that you observe parents doing over a long period of time. So, you know, if say we do have um, for for any new parents in the audience, um, anything that you might recommend that you saw was especially helpful or especially um, you know important in child development yes. that people might miss. So, so just things like that um, pertinent to to how we move forward based on your research. Yeah, you know, I think it's really important for all of us as parents, and I went through this myself with three kids, to actually acknowledge that we don't leave work at work. I have many folks that I interviewed say, when I leave work, I leave work at work and I come home and I just, you know, don't think about it. 
We may say that and we may think that's possible. Um, it's really not possible. And, and our data shows again and again, even the parents that are saying that to us, when we actually look at the data, you've had a really lousy day at work. You see more negative interactions between parents and kids. It's pretty clear. Or you see, you see either more negative reactions or what you see is major levels of withdrawal. And what I mean by that is parents who will come home and sit in front of the TV and, or read the paper or some just disengage from family interaction in a way um, that's really detrimental for kids. So I guess my first words of advice to parents is kind of own it. And and if you are did have a really bad day and you know you're coming home with that, how are you going to work that out with your spouse if there's a spouse around? How do you acknowledge that to your kids? Is it the case that you could say, I need I need a half an hour to just recover? I'm going to go take a bath or take a shower and change my clothes. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to try and engage. But they, that we actually try and become a little more thoughtful about about how that work does spill over um, because all of us, I think, want to think we can rise above it. Um, but what our data is showing is it's really hard to rise above it and it does affect our interactions with kids. Um, the other thing, especially I think with infants, there's a, sometimes an assumption that because they can't talk to us and that they're somehow not feeling or experiencing the stress or the negativity. And one of the things in, in one of my students' studies was, you know, when parents have really lousy days at work, they tend to have more negative interactions with their partners. So children inadvertently become exposed to much more negativity in their home with their parents. And parents sometimes just think kids are unaware or they don't even know we're fighting or there's nothing could be further from the truth. Infants physiologically, if you look at their physiological responses when parents are fighting, you actually see raises in cortisol in infants when they're exposed to conflict in their parents. Young children have all sorts of coping mechanisms that they use when their parents are in high levels of conflict. So that's just one example. Or when a parent comes home depressed. So my message is not to blame parents, but my message is to for parents to be aware that it's really hard to separate work and family. And, and you have every reason to be stressed and exhausted from work, but it's starting to think about what would be the solutions for me coming home. Or are there things you can think of at work? Is there a way to meet with a supervisor and really talk about this would make the world of difference? Is it even possible? Like how could they could start advocating for themselves to just decrease some of those levels of stress at the work site that could make a huge difference? So I, so I guess in sort of giving advice to parents, there's the immediate advice of sort of how you can be the best parent you can be, which is pretty much what every parent wants to do. Um, and not blaming parents for workplaces that make it really hard to do that. So I, I get, you know, that we're in a sort of a double bind here because ideally workplaces need to change, um, to be, be able to respond to employers, employees in a way that's going to support them. But also if they're not changing and parents still need to be aware that it is spilling over and how do we protect children in that, in that process? That makes sense. <laughs> a lot of talking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, anyway, those those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Perry Jenkins. Okay, thank you. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, thank you everyone for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.